When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those stories bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. A few general disclaimers. We missed you last week, but we have a newborn son, and we really just couldn't get everything together for a good episode. So we are back this week. Like our previous episodes since Arthur has been born, Arthur is in the room with us. You may hear some sounds from him, and we're going to go like that one. We're going to go as long as we can until we either talk about everything we wanted to talk about or Arthur doesn't let us continue anymore, whichever happens first. But we are here, and inspired by the birth of our son, Arthur Roland Jones, we're going to do an episode about another famous Arthur in pop culture, no, not King Arthur, because we did that, I don't know, we did that a while ago. Yeah, but also a thousand times. And also, this episode will feature some King Arthur. Absolutely. So we are going to be talking about the Lord of the Seven Seas, the Ocean Master, the 2018 action-adventure movie, Aquaman. Arthur Curry, Hurricane Arthur, Jason Momoa as the man who talks to fish. Very, very excited to do Aquaman today. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited. I do think Aquaman is a really fun movie, and I really enjoy it. And I think there's a lot of things from the Midnight Myth lens, Midnight Myth perspective that we can get into. So I'm very excited to roll up the sleeves, dive under the surface, and really talk about all things Aquaman. But before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Before we get too deep into it, oh, we're going to dive in. I love it. Thank you for that, Derek. My thing is just that we would love to hear from you. We're over on social media at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. 
And we're on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. And we would love it if you would drop us a line, tell us what you think of the show, give us any ideas for episodes in the future. Um, And then on our website, you'll also find a link to our Patreon page and our merch store if you were interested in supporting us financially. But if you don't have the liquid cash at the moment, the very best thing you can do for the podcast costs you no money at all. It's just five minutes of your time. If you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star rating and review, especially on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, really helps other people find us. And it feels really great to know that you're listening and that you enjoy what you're hearing. Absolutely. And if you like us, tell a friend. If you don't like us, tell Tell your your enemy to listen to us. And that would make us very happy. Shall we move on to the briefest of brief recaps? Yeah, please. This movie came out in 2018, and it features Aquaman from the DCEU, the DC Comics Extended Universe. And it starts with Aquaman coming to the aid of a submarine being attacked by a group of submarine pirates, where one of the submarine hijackers, one of the pirates, his father gets killed by Aquaman, leaving to drown forming the story and backstory, I should say, of the villain-to-be Black Manta. Meanwhile, we go back into Arthur's past, and we learn that the uh, Queen of Atlantis has left Atlantis stranded upon the lighthouse where Arthur's father lives, and in there a romance from the Atlantean and the surface dweller Buds. However, this romance is short-lived because the Atlanteans will not let the queen live on the surface, having given birth to a half-Atlantean, half-surface-dweller child named Arthur. So the queen of Atlantis returns to Atlantis before vowing to her surface-dweller lover that one day she can return to him because that's where her heart resides. We then flash forward to see that Arthur Curry, the Aquaman, is a grown-up superhero, and he is being asked to return to Atlantis by Mara because the king of Atlantis, his younger brother Orm, is planning to become the Ocean Master. The Ocean Master will be the ruler of the seas, and then after being a ruler of the seas, will try to conquer the surface world. So Aquaman goes to Atlantis, sees it for the first time, challenges Orm for the kingship, and they have a ritualistic king-on-king battle where Arthur summarily gets his butt whooped and he loses. This then prompts him and Mara to go on an Indiana Jones-style adventure through the Sahara Desert, and they eventually find a map to the original trident wielded by King Atlan, The theory being, if Arthur can wield this trident, it will prove that he is, in fact, the true king of Atlantis, the real ocean master, and will be able to wield this to stop Orm from conquering the seas and then destroying the surface. This plan is pretty dangerous, but it ultimately works out. After Arthur and Mera make their way through the trench, a lost kingdom of Atlantis, where the once humans have devolved into monstrous creatures, and finds his way to sort of the center of the earth, finding out that his mother is still alive and has living there. And then Arthur meets the Kraken, has a psychic conversation with the Kraken, and so much happens in this movie, and he ends up getting the trident. This is happening right as King Orm is launching a major battle against the kingdom of the Brine. Yes, the crab people. And sharks with freaking lasers on them, and Arthur shows up, with the Kraken on his side and ends up battling King Orm, 
They end up meeting at the surface one-on-one, and Arthur defeats Orm and becomes the master of both worlds, the hero of the surface world, the king and ocean master of the deep. Woo, amazing recap. Well done. So much happens in this movie. It is it is a spectacle. Now, I have to ask, just want to start off here. This movie came out in 2018. It is definitely new. So the question, does it hold up, really doesn't apply. But Laurel, I want you to give me just kind of your overall impressions of the movie, what you like about it, and maybe pick out some high-level themes to sort of jumpstart our conversation. Yeah, I got to be honest. I kind of love this movie, flaws and all, and it is extremely flawed. Like, the movie is terribly overstuffed. The characters are pretty underwritten uh, all over the place, but I just, I can't get enough of it. It is so spectacular. It is so much fun. Uh, It takes tons of risks and it is a very different DC from the DC of Justice League or Batman versus Superman or even Wonder Woman for that matter. And I think DC does its best when it takes itself just the right amount of seriously. Like most of the time it's taking itself either too seriously in a Batman versus Superman kind of way or it's taking itself not seriously enough in a Suicide Squad type of way. And the movies Wonder Woman, uh, Aquaman, and Birds of Prey are highlights in there that I think take themselves just seriously enough. So that's one of the things that I love about this movie is that it has heart. Uh, Its script may not be total perfection, but it is a glorious ride. It is absolutely a roller coaster, visually stunning, and does something I think really different. As far as high-level themes, like this is the most midnight myth DC movie out there, right? So we get tons of references to ancient Greek mythology, like King Nereus, who's Mira's father. He's named for a Greek sea god who was the father of the Nereids, a bunch of water nymphs, and he's also the grandfather of Achilles in Greek mythology. So excellent reference there. Obviously, the references to Atlantis, which we'll talk about more. Uh, And then tons of references to Arthurian legend, which, as you know, is one of my passions. So it is full of all of these ideas of mythology and history that kind of wrap up into one in this glorious pop culture mishmash that is just too over the top to be like a great movie, but it is a ton of fun. Yeah, it's great in its own way. It's not great in a critical way, meaning that I guess that's that's not what exactly I mean. What I mean is It doesn't hold up under scrutiny, this movie. Not really, no. It wouldn't pass the Midnight Myth perfect movie gauntlet. It wouldn't even get very far in it. The movie is very much based off of the Throne of Atlantis comic, one of the attempts of DC to sort of reinvigorate Aquaman. I think um, DC comic book nerds, you can fact check me because I'm riffing this off the top of my head. I think that was part of the New 52 movement where they were trying to kind of reboot the DC comic book universe. I've read that comic and it is outstanding. It is a really good story and it really makes Aquaman a very interesting and also from a hero perspective, very powerful in the sort of pantheon of DC heroes and the DC heroes really, especially in the justice league sense, they really emulate the Olympians to me or maybe the um, Aesir and Asgard. like They're like gods to me, walking and living on Earth. They actually live in a spaceship 
monitoring the earth and coming down from the heavens to protect earth from faults. Aquaman was always one of, and when I was growing up, was always the most made fun of superhero of the DC. Yeah, he talks to fish. It's super cheesy. But what we see when taken that serious, when you become the master of the ocean, you have a tremendous amount of power because most of the planet obviously is ocean. So who controls the seas in both a metaphoric sense, a mythological sense, and a pragmatic sense is an incredibly powerful individual. For a long time in human history, naval power was the supreme power. If you controlled the seas, you controlled the planet. That's how the British Empire conquered, like, everything. So the control of sea, the control over the ocean is an important theme. And it's a theme that echoes deep in human history. And the character Arthur is a character that is constantly being asked to straddle two different worlds. The world of hero and the world of king. The world of great duties that and deeds that are heroic, that are passionate, that save lives versus the ruling of a domain and the politics and the war. And these things are in constant conflict in this character and constant conflict in the throne of Atlanta story, which then the cinematic universe, this Arthur doesn't want the mantle of king and he has to learn to accept it. He's accepted the mantle of hero. He is accepted that he is a person of the surface first and of the sea second. And this movie is about straddling those two worlds. And it's about these conflicting ideas of the self. And I think that is very relatable. We all have different roles, different hats that we have to wear. And we all have to reconcile them and sometimes are forced to be split into two different directions. You just want to drink beer on the surface and fight aliens when they come to attack the planet and maybe stop pirates. But now here is a tyrannical king who's trying to take over the ocean with the plan of destroying the surface world that you love. And the only way for you to stop them is to become the very thing you loathe, a king of Atlantis. And I think that's kind of my general thematic take on it. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I have found about those uh, DC movies that I think are the most successful is that at their heart, they're about love and Aquaman is no different. So Wonder Woman is clearly about finding an overwhelming love of humanity, faults and all. Shazam is another one that is about love of family, whether that family is born or chosen. Uh, Birds of Prey is about love of a breakfast sandwich or of a young person who wants to be like you or finding love for yourself. And Aquaman is about love in, I think, a very simple way. It's about this love between a man and a woman, Aquaman's parents, that births a hero and that unites different worlds and kingdoms because the love between two people can be that overwhelming. And in this moment when we're, you know, holding our six-week-old son and his name is also Arthur, it's kind of a, a, a very poignant thing to meditate on, that the love between two people can create another person and that person can be a hero. That's kind of amazing. It really is. And yes, this movie puts spectacle, style, and action ahead of theme and character and plots that kind of make sense. Sure. It absolutely does. 
but I respect the swing. I respect that it just went for it. And we have sharks with lasers fighting crab people when the Kraken shows up. We have, you know, Arthur Curry in the orange Aquaman suit that's just not really meant to be in a movie, in a movie that's grounded in some semblance of reality. They're like, nope, he's going to emerge in King Atlan's armor and he's going to look like Aquaman from the comic books and he's going to lead the Kraken on the field of battle under the ocean. I mean, it's just... It's absolutely insane. William Defoe's going to train him how to use a, a trident. Like everything and anything that could be in this movie is. And I really respect how bonkers crazy it is. Me too. Let's turn a little to our Midnight Myth style analysis. Where would you like to begin, Laurel? Uh, if you wouldn't mind, I would love to begin with some of the uh, comparisons to the Arthurian legend, because I think that's appropriate. We've got King Arthur on both sides. Is that cool with you? Absolutely. So there are obviously tons of superficial similarities. We have two characters whose names are King Arthur. That is not a mistake. King Arthur and Arthur Curry. They both wield magical weapons of destiny. We have the uh, we have the sword of destiny Excalibur on one hand. And then we have the trident wielded by King Atlan. Both of those things have to be pulled from a particular spot by the only worthy King. Uh, So that is a clear superficial similarity. Both of them are born under auspicious phenomena. So Hurricane Arthur is the weather circumstances that provide the name for baby Arthur in this story. And then King Arthur was actually portended by a comet in some versions of the legend, especially uh, in Geoffrey of Monmouth, who Merlin sees this comet in the sky and tells Uther Pendragon, this means you are going to have a great son who is going to do great things. And they're both bastards. So some of the texts will redeem King Arthur's bastardhood by having Uther and Igraine, his parents, marry each other after he's born because you can't really have a bastard sitting on the throne of Britain. But they are both technically conceived out of wedlock, and so there is this mystery about their origins, where they come from, and where they truly belong. But I think the most important similarity between King Arthur and Arthur Curry is that both of these men are destined to be unifiers. They are not just kings of one country or one people or one tribe. They become symbols of something greater because they're able to rally people who normally wouldn't get along to overcome overwhelming odds. Now, the historical Arthur is kind of the basis for this. There's a lot of debate over whether there was a historical Arthur, whether he is based on one person or based on several people or just completely made up and slotted into historical circumstances. But the basic context is that Britain in the fifth century was a Roman colony. They were Roman citizens. And then Rome was sacked by the Goths in 410, I believe. And they had to immediately pull their troops out. So Britain was left undefended with Uh, no one to help them, and they were totally open to invasion. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, The Anglo-Saxon invasion was taking over Britain, and one man, according to legend and pseudo-history, rallied the troops of Britain to push back this invasion for a generation. It's an extraordinary feat for someone to have done in this time, and that's the basis of the historical King Arthur. Now, one of the things that is really important in some of the historical texts, especially the text 
on the ruin and conquest of Britain, written by Gildas in probably the 6th century, is that this person, this historical man who rallied these troops, who in Gildas's text is named Ambrosius Aurelianus, is Roman, is a Celt, he's a Briton, he is definitely of this land, but he is of Roman parentage and of noble parentage. He writes in this text, quote, a gentleman who, perhaps alone of the Romans, had survived the shock of this notable storm. Certainly his parents, who had worn the purple, were slain in it. His descendants in our day have become greatly inferior to their grandfather's excellence. Under him, our people regained their strength and challenged the victors to battle. The Lord assented, and the battle went their way. End quote. So a couple of notable things to call out in this quote his parents had worn the purple. That means they were noble Roman citizens. Uh, and also the Lord assented and the battle went their way. So under this person, uh, God was on their side, destiny was on their side, and the tide of the battle turned and favored the underdogs because this man was so great he was able to rally these people to push back an invasion. I think this is super important when thinking about Aquaman, too, because we get the quote late in the movie about being a king versus being a hero. According to Atlanta, the queen of Atlantis and Arthur's mother, a king fights only for his own country, a hero fights for everyone. And that, I think, is what King Arthur has become in the later sort of symbolic expression of his character. He can be reincarnated in so many different aspects to represent a unifier whose story was so captivating that it was retold by the French it's been retold by people in Spain. It's been retold by people in the uh, Norse countries. It has been adapted by Americans. It's something that is so clearly grounded in this British history, but has come to represent such a universal hero who is able to bring people together across boundaries that everyone feels they have some ownership over his story. And I think Aquaman is striving for that same kind of energy. This is someone who can unite the surface and uh, the, the seas, who can bring people together because he is great, because he is magnanimous, and because he is a product of love between differing peoples. Yeah, I love all of that. Can I you know, pick out a few things? Yeah. Um, one thing just to mention, so you mentioned 410, that's when the Visigoths sacked Rome. Well, Britain was a what was considered a Roman province. This is sort of my area of expertise where our, our two passions are overlapping yeah, absolutely. here. Um, in the ancient Roman Empire, when you were conquered, there were a few different ways that you could be formed um, and folded into the empire. The most common was the provincial style of government. You create a province. You have a Roman governor appointed by the Senate officially, but appointed by the emperor by this point. The emperor says who's going to be that, the governor. And then the provincial governor would be responsible for maintaining the Romanness of the province. What do I mean by that? The urban planning, the culture, the education, the teaching of Latin to the elites, the forming of a new pro-Roman elite in the provincial government. So the governor would find people in the area where they were um, conquered, would initiate them into Roman citizenry and install them as the elites and try to rule through them. A lot of 
you know, provinces would maintain heavy autonomy and individuality. So they would, uh, for example, maybe worship their own gods or God in the case of, for example, Judea. They may dress not in a traditional Roman fashion. But most of the provinces in particular in the western half of the Roman Empire really Romanized. They started worshiping the Roman gods, adopting Roman dress, and eventually every freeborn, so as long as you didn't have a parent that was a slave that was born in a Roman province, was considered a Roman citizen and had all the rights included. There was, at least off the top of my head, one Britain-born Roman citizen who became emperor, and that is Constantine, also known as Constantine the Great. And Constantine is known for having decriminalized Christianity. I believe he is Saint Constantine in the Catholic Church and started the process of converting the Roman Empire from polytheism into a Christian monotheism. And he also moved the capital of Rome from Rome itself to what is now modern-day Istanbul, Constantinople back in the ancient world, and centered the empire more eastern. So ironically, from the most western northern province, we have a southern eastern emperor who shifted the seat of power, which irrevocably changed the Roman Empire and hence the world. All this is to say, one, I like to talk about this stuff because I like to talk about it, but how it applies to the text of Aquaman I think is very interesting. Because the provincial government collapsed about a century before the Western Roman Empire collapsed in the province of Britannium, England went through the Dark Age before anyone else in the West. It dealt with the anarchy and the chaos of no central government, and out of it emerged the medieval country of England, that we know today. And because of that, England was a major power player in the nation states to come in the Middle Ages because it had a century of Dark Age before the rest of the Western Roman Empire. It went through the chaos. And what do we see in Aquaman? We see an empire that was once great, that has completely fallen into ruin and disarray, we see desperate tribes vying for supremacy, and we see people trying to reunite by reclaiming the titles of old. For example, King Orm is king. That's a great thing to be. In Latin, that would be Rex, but he's not the ocean master. There is a title bigger than king. In the actual history, the Dark Ages of medieval Britain, England, there were lots of war chiefs calling themselves kings. But what was Arthur? He was the high king. He was the paramount king. He was able to unite all these other little kingdoms yeah. into one. He was the elevated king. He was the ocean master, except he was on land. So how does Arthur narratively do this? By reclaiming the Romanness. By saying, I am linked to this past and hence, because I'm linked to this past, I now have a narrative by which I can rule. A narrative which all English kings would follow for a very long time. What does Arthur Curry need to do? He needs to reclaim the narrative of I am connected to King Atlan. How do we know this? I can wield the trident. I can talk to fish. I'm the actual ocean master 
and Orm is the pretender. I can unite the tribes and reclaim some semblance of the empire that was. And fun thing historically, this with the collapse of Rome, it didn't just happen in England. It happened everywhere. When the Russian state that we know it broke off from the Byzantine Empire, the Byzantine Empire, who, by the way, called themselves the Roman Empire, what did that new Russian kingdom call themselves? The Roman Empire. They called Moscow the new Rome. And the leader of that empire, they called, in Russian, Tsar, which stands for Caesar. When Napoleon claimed that he was now the single ruler of the modern French Republic, he took the term emperor and crowned himself sort of in the way that Charlemagne was crowned by the Pope. And what did he call himself? Holy Roman Emperor. The Holy Roman Emperor. So all over in our own history, once Rome started to contract and started to fall apart, and this took a long time, anyone claiming leadership in the West or the Near East in the shadows of the once great Roman empire had to reclaim some element of Romanness to say they have a legitimate right to rule. And this is exactly the political paradigm that Arthur Curry is in. He needs to reclaim Atlantinness. He needs to reclaim ocean master authority through symbolic and ritualistic acts. Just as Arthur draws the sword from the stone, Aquaman draws the trident from the deep, and so on and so forth. Excellently well said. Yeah, these characters have to have the blood connection and have to have the connection to the line of old. They have to be Roman, or they have to be descended from Atlan or Atlanta. Uh, it's important that even though we're telling a modern story here with Aquaman, we're pulling from very ancient ideas and primogeniture and uh, the divine right of kings. That is all being passed down through this comic book superhero. Absolutely. Um, yeah, thank you for preparing all that. And thank you for letting me tangent a little oh on it. Oh my God, it. it was a perfect compliment. Um, do you want to move on? Yeah, let's move on. I want to talk a little bit about the myth of Atlantis. Now, if you've been a fan of the podcast for a while, you'll recognize and remember, I think it was episode 63, Little Mermaid. We talked at length about the myth of Atlantis. So we might retread some of that territory, but hopefully take it a little bit further than we did then. So let's talk about Atlantis. Where does the myth come from? And how does Aquaman live in the shadow of that myth? And to understand the myth of Atlantis, we have to go back to the friend of the podcast, our main man, Plato, and his dialogues of Socrates. Now, there are two dialogues that mention the myth of Atlantis. And as far as anyone is aware... This is the first time it's mentioned. At the very least, this is the only ancient textual reference. Did Plato invent the myth of Atlantis? Was it co-opted? These are mysteries we'll probably never know unless a new manuscript or text or piece of evidence um, comes about. But we do know that through Plato's dialogue, the myth of Atlantis was either born or recreated and its impact has reverberated from there ever since. The two dialogues are the Timaeus and the Critias. These are more... Now, Plato wrote the dialogues of Socrates, and these are when Socrates engages in a conversation with people in order to try to highlight and teach and discuss philosophy. 
and they're called Socratic dialogues, and there is a method to it. What makes the Timaeus and the Critias a little different is they're not really dialogues, they're much more monologues, and they are very much a foundational creation myth style monologues. This is when Socrates details things like the great craftsmen who created the foundation of the rational universe, gave birth to the gods, and in it, in the Timaeus, Socrates mentions Atlantis, and then in the Critias, he goes at length about Atlantis. And the story we get from Socrates goes more or less as follows. Ancient Athens, one of its founding members was a guy named Solon. Solon created the Athenian laws that created and formed the Athenian caste system, as well as helped usher in the era of Athenian democracy, and is a very famous ancient Athenian. Consider him like a John Adams or Thomas Jefferson of ancient Athens, someone that created laws and structure that were then used to create the society and the democracy around it. Now, Socrates, through Plato, says that Solon traveled to Egypt and there was performing in an Egyptian temple a sacrifice to an Egyptian god and struck up a conversation with the Egyptian priests who said that 9,500 years before the time that the Critian was being written, there was this place called Atlantis. It had vast wealth. It was located just west of the Strait of Gibraltar in the ancient world called the Pillar of Hercules. It is the place between North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula in Spain. It's what gets the Mediterranean flowing into the Atlantic Ocean. And that the Atlanteans were so wealthy and powerful and hubristic that eventually the gods turned on them and sunk their island into the water for retribution for their hubris and for their um, lack of piety. In the That was in the Timaeus that happened. I think I said the Critias earlier. The Critias takes it a bit further. And the Critias talks about that the Atlanteans decided they wanted to conquer the entire world. And one by one, all of the different peoples were being gobbled up under the might of Atlantis. Emerging from that was the Athenian power. And the Athenians were the ones who stemmed the tide and turned the Atlanteans back. And then when the Atlanteans turned back, the gods were so upset at their hubris about them wanting to try to conquer the world and were so angry that Zeus went to Poseidon, who was the patron god of Atlantis, and was like, yo, Poseidon, you done messed up. These Atlanteans are way too powerful. They think they're gods. You got to do something. And Poseidon sinks them to the bottom of the ocean. The idea behind this and what most scholars discuss is, you know, Socrates goes on and on about how through the act of warfare, patriotism from a people can emerge. When you strip down luxury and wealth and you pit a people versus a people simply for the might of what is good for the world, the virtuous, those that are not absorbed in luxury and access wealth, those that practice piety, are going to have the most patriotic valor in battle and they're going to be able to win. It's going to be favored by the gods, but it's also their own innate virtue. And what Socrates is doing is critiquing the powerful, wealthy elites of Athenians at that time, who he saw as luxurious, who he saw as lazy, who he saw as not self-sacrificing for the greater good of Athens, but trying to live off of the greed of the work of others. 
And because he solved this military gravitas, this lack of Athenian patriotism, he is telling a cautionary tale because Athens was aspiring to a Greek empireship. In fact, during this time, Athens was at war with Sparta for hegemony pardon me, over the Greek island. And at this time as well, they weren't doing so good. So what Socrates saw was the Spartans with their lack of materialism, their self-sacrifice, their military discipline. And he's telling a story, watch out Athens, because if we become too much like the Atlanteans, we're going to crumble and fall and decay too. And to a certain extent, this is true as Athens does go to lose the war with Sparta and never again has a great empire. It was called the Athenian League, and this was a bunch of Greek city-states that were in Greece and other Greek colonies in the ancient Mediterranean. Then when the Spartans defeat them in the what's called the Peloponnesian War, the Athenian League is broken up. And though ancient Athenian culture and society, no doubt, has left a monumental imprint on Western civilization, and I'd say Near Eastern civilization, it would never go again to become a great empire. To a certain extent, Socrates' warning of Atlantis does come to fruition. Now, how does this story of ancient Athenian virtue and lack of ancient Athenian virtue and caution about not being able to sacrifice and have patriotic duty in war turn into Aquaman? turn into this underwater civilization with sharks and lasers and octopuses playing the drums and superheroes with magical tridents that can have psychic conversation with sea life. How does this transform from this beginning? The myth of Atlantis, it had a grip on people from the start. People read it and thought that Plato was telling a literal tale. It was misinterpreted not as a metaphorical or allegorical warning to the Athenian people on the verge of losing a major war, but rather an actual true story. Solon had been to Egypt. Solon did have this conversation. Atlantis did exist. This let explorers for centuries trying to find evidence of the sunken civilization of Atlantis. Now, when people are out on long sea voyages, we all know if you've studied any ancient myths at all, they're prone to telling stories. Long sea voyages are dangerous. They are stressful. There is often lack of good food and water. And what food and water you have is generally not a healthy and well-balanced diet. And sailors like to tell tall tales and stories. So stories emerge of the monsters and creatures of the sea, including the stories of the mermaids. And the mermaids ended up taking shape and form as potentially the lost people of Atlantis. Atlantis sunk to the sea, but its magic and might was so powerful, they were able to find a way to survive. And in this, we see Atlantis representing this great unknown, this idea that there are other worlds, worlds that are thriving and prosperous, worlds that are right around the corner, Worlds that we, if we could just get a little deeper into the ocean, have a little more magic or a little more luck, we might be able to see and find. It becomes a symbol of humankind's quest for knowledge, for discovery, and to find our, our way through the unknown, to become masters of multiple worlds. This is manifested in you know, our desire to, people of European descent, 
to travel across the Atlantic Ocean and discover America, which was thought of potentially, was this Atlantis? Maybe we have actually found Atlantis and it didn't sink into the sea. Turned out, no, it was America. <laughs> and this is also manifest in so many other myths that are about finding the mystical world right around the corner of the natural world and the hero's job to become master of both the mystical and the mundane, to become both the, 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 the person that can conquer this other world while then returning to the normal world a heroic self who is better capable to deal with the challenges that we face. This is the story of Aquaman in a nutshell. Aquaman is the king of Atlantis and the hero of the surface by the end of this story. At the same time, you know, as we have this incredible symbolic uh, expression of the hero's journey, we also have in Aquaman's opposition in King Orm, someone who maybe sees the history of the Atlantic Empire, this fallen empire that's split into kingdoms. Some of the people of Atlantis have re retained their greatness and some of them have devolved into the brine creatures, the crab people, sees this and wants to become ocean master again, wants to reclaim ocean master wants to conquer the surface and thinks that that's the way you become ocean master but he's reliving the cautionary tale that plato and socrates are relating here you don't become ocean master by conquering you become ocean master by uniting it's not through the seas taking over the surface that you can claim that greatness it's not through war it's through cooperation it's through community and it's through heroism Absolutely. Well, what else you got? The last couple things I've got is the only canon that I actually observe when it comes to the myth of Atlantis is the Donovan song. So definitely spin that after the podcast. And then I have a comic book recommendation for anybody who is a fan of Aquaman or a fan of comics or a fan of the Arthurian legend. And that's Camelot 3000, which is a DC comic from the 1980s. Uh, where King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table are reincarnated in the year 3000 to fight off an alien invasion. So once again, King Arthur has to unite the galaxy to uh, fight off an evil that is coming from the outside. And it is, of course, led by Morgan Le Fay and Mordred. Uh, so I highly recommend it. But one of the best things about it with relation to Aquaman is that King Arthur's costuming in Camelot 3000 is highly reminiscent of the Aquaman armor, especially the way we see it expressed in this movie. So definitely check it out if you can get a copy of it. I think it's out of print, but you can still find copies of it cheap online. So highly recommend. Yeah, love that recommendation. I think Aquaman is a fun, awesome rock and roll adventure of a movie. And I am so glad that we we talk about Marvel all the time on this podcast because the MCU is pretty prolific and it is absolutely the sort of pop culture comic book zeitgeist. But watch out because DC's there doing some really cool, interesting, wacky things and I love it. And until next time, be kind. Be kind.